The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Welcome to Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. As you have already been greeted, I hope that you have begun to engage God this morning, knowing that He has invited you here. That God, the the church has been known historically as the meeting house, because it was the place where God meets with His people where he invites us to come in from whatever story we have. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a couple of different stories of how God meets us. He meets us in the middle of our pain. He meets us in the middle of our loss. He meets us in in the middle of our sin. But he comes to us and meets with us. I look out at all the different lives and stories that are represented sitting here, both individual stories and family stories. And I wonder, I asked you a question today, are you excited to meet with Jesus? How would you respond? For some of you, would be like, yeah, I can't wait to meet him. For others of you, you would go, I don't think he wants to meet with me. If he really knew what was going on, he wouldn't want to meet with me. And if, if he did, if, if I was walking towards him, I, it would be with my head down, heavy, in the midst of my loss and my shame. Not sure why he would want to meet with me. Friends, let me encourage you this morning. God, the Lord of the universe, the King of life, the one who has forgiven all of our sins at the cross, wants to meet with you today. Isn't that great news? I don't know what meetings you have this week, but not one of them surpasses the greatness of the meeting that you're having right now. And that's good. That's good news. This morning we're going to be reading and continuing to study in the Gospel of Luke. The way that we have divided the Gospel throughout the course of our study in this year is that it's not going to move sequentially. We're not, we're not going from verse 1-1 all the way through. We're, we're grouping and we're moving. We're touching on all of the gospel, but doing it in a way that we believe will be helpful uh, in our understanding, making it uh, attainable, as it were, for us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, we're looking at a grouping uh, of three passages from chapter 7, the two in chapter 7 and one in chapter 8. They'll be on the screen for you, or you can open your Bibles, but as we do each week, not by tradition, but out of reverence for the one who is speaking, and that is not me, but God himself. Let's stand in the presence of the Lord to hear uh, his word, to hear uh, the Lord speaking to us today. Friends, hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, He went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, 
he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother, and fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And drop down now to verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he wouldn't have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit in his fullness into this place and that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be drawn to you in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our suffering, that we would see Jesus today and that our hearts would be enlarged would be changed, would be made new, and that we would love you from the fullness and the wholeness of our hearts. Father, we praise you and give you glory in Christ's name and to your name's sake. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction, I wonder if you picked up on the grouping of why we put these three uh, groups together. 
And the reason that we did isn't the main point of the sermon, but it's something that I want to make sure that is highlighted and not lost as we go through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Notice in each of these stories, it's the story of a widow, a woman. The second story is the story of a woman in the city. The third little part there, chapter 8, the first few verses, highlights the role of women within the ministry of Jesus. The reason that we wanted to at least group these together is to remind us as as we are moving through the Gospel of Luke that Luke is writing strategically. He is writing in a way that says so that we may know a full and complete understanding of the gospel, of the impact of the gospel on individual lives, the impact of the gospel on the gathered lives, that is, the church itself. And what you find in Luke is he, unlike uh, and different from the other gospel writers, highlights the role and the function of women more than any other gospel writer. He begins and highlights Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and he looks at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the prophetess uh, Anna, women who were healed by Jesus, women who were given as examples by Jesus, Mary and Martha, the women who were supporting Jesus in his ministry, and ultimately the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. See, no other world religion has highlighted and has done more for the cause of women than Christianity, yet Christianity carries with it a stigma a misogynistic stigma, a paternalistic stigma of abuse of women and suppression of women. That stigma doesn't come from a proper biblical translation. Unfortunately, it comes from the improper practice of the church throughout the years. And what I want you to understand and to see is the beauty and the work of the gospel in the lives of individuals, of men and of women, of the beauty of how God has uniquely gifted each of us in our personhood and in our roles. I don't have time to fully unpack it, but in Genesis, when Eve is described, she is called the Ezer. She is called, and many would translate it, the helpmate or the helper, and so it seems to be a diminished uh, role, sort of a secondary role to who Adam uh, was the first created. But it's interesting in the terminology, if you go and do a study, and I'd encourage you to do this on your own. Our, our women's ministry has highlighted this over the years. It's interesting that that word, Ezer, is used 20 other places in the Scripture. And in every single one of those uses, it's describing God. It is a description of God who comes not in some secondary role, in some diminished role, but in the beautiful role, as one person described it, as he is a lifesaver. Not a helpmeet, but a lifesaver. And so there's a beauty within the church. And I want to make sure that in our church we have a proper biblical understanding of roles. Next week, we are going to see uh, that there are a group of men who will be ordained and installed as officers, deacons, and elders within our church. And you would go, see, Bill, you're contradicting yourself the very next week. 
because you only allow men to be in those roles. The point of that isn't a suppressive point. The point of that is a design point, that God has designed men and women for different functions within the church, different roles within the economy. And he points it back, not only to creation, but I would point it back beyond that. We say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal with one another in power and in glory. Would you agree with that? That Jesus Christ, equal with God the Father in power and in glory, submitted himself to the Father and had a different function and role within the economy of the Trinity. It didn't diminish his personhood. It differentiated it. That's the same beauty within the church. The same beauty within the church of equality before God, beauty before God, calling before God, but differentiating in roles within the church, roles within the world. And what we should do as a church is to highlight and celebrate those rather than try to defend those or move away from those. Because what we're going to see here today, God in all of his profound wisdom wanted to describe how he draws near to people in their lostness, people in their pain, people in their suffering. And he said, I'm going to highlight the beauty in these women of how I draw near to them. And I turn the paradigm on its head. Remember we said last week, this is an upside down kingdom. For many within the ancient world, they would have read this and said, I don't believe in God. I diminish God. I dismiss God. Because Jesus spoke of women, Jesus said, oh, no, not in some weird, perverted way. He said, I highlight women, and I love them in a beautiful way. I celebrate and honor them. And so this morning, as we look at these women who are within the Scripture, I want you to see how God is drawn to us in our pain, how he meets us there in our pain, and how he meets us in our sin, in our losses. So the first point there, that Jesus meets us in our pain. That's verses 11 through 17 of chapter 7. It says, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So you can imagine, there's hundreds of people surrounding Jesus, going with him, coming around, talking to him, trying to touch him. There's people uh, coming from the countryside, trying to penetrate into the crowd to touch, because they've heard, if you remember last week, we said that, that Jesus allowed individuals to come and to touch him, and they were fully healed simply by touching him that the power of his person had went out, that, that incredible glory went out, and it healed them. So this is a scene, uh, not of some public procession of perfection, uh, but it's a mob rule. It is them moving along. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, he noticed that there was a funeral procession. He noticed that there uh, was a funeral buyer, which would have been a flat piece of wood that would have carried the dead body, and the people would have been carrying it with sticks so as not to have touched the dead body and become unceremonially unclean. And there would have been professional mourners around. You would have paid someone to mourn for your lost loved one. And they would have been wailing, and they would have been very much in that Middle Eastern context of the expressiveness of their pain, the expressiveness of their grief. And there was, as Jesus drew near, he couldn't miss seeing that. 
But what he might have missed seeing was the solitary figure of the mother. The solitary figure of the woman who had already done this once before for her husband. And now she was doing it for her only child, her only son. And it says that Jesus saw them. Jesus came, and to set the stage a little bit, in this culture, this woman was now utterly lost. She had no place in culture. She had no place in society. She was fully dependent upon her husband, and now that the husband was gone, she was very thankful that she had a child and that that child was a male child. That was her hope, her entire hope, uh, not just of a family name like us, not just of him going off to play football or going off to get a degree. Her entire hope of sustenance of life was bound in the life of her son. That was the culture of the day. He was the only child, and he was a son, and he was now dead. It says that he was a young man, a descriptor, not a child, that he was a young man. So the first thing that we understand about Jesus meeting us in the midst of our pain, well, before I get there, let me, let me ask you this. Maybe you haven't lost a child. Some of you have experienced that. I'm reading a, a book now about a man and a woman who, it's written in the 1960s, who had seven children and they lost three of them in their adolescence and in their youth and in their young age. And reading about this family and their pain, but their hope in the gospel. Some of you can't relate to the death of a child, but you can relate to loss. You can relate to losing a loved one, a husband or a wife, losing a beloved friend, losing everything that you had hope in. It doesn't have to be a human being. It could be maybe the loss of your marriage. It could be the loss of your career. Whatever it is, it's in the midst of loss. And in the midst of that loss, there still is the din of life that goes on. There's still people all around. Culture keeps moving forward. Life keeps moving forward. And you feel unbelievably isolated uh, as that little uh, woman, that, that widow was of walking with a whole bunch of people who were trying to relate to her, but not one of them was really able to relate to her. Have you ever been in that place? of your sitting in the midst of your pain, you're sitting in the midst of your loss, and the people around you are trying their very best to relate to you. And you just wish they would be quiet. Just, just quit talking. Maybe just be. I remember after my dad died, uh, it was sudden, it was unexpected, and I was back in the bedroom in my, in my house where mom and dad lived, and we weren't able to get in touch with Lisa. It was pre-cell phone days, and she was traveling on business in Raleigh, and we were trying to track her down. And, and I was sitting there alone and, and just wanting to be alone, and, and this man from our church came in and wanted to chat it up. And I was like, dude, really? Leave me alone. 
But being a good, polite Southern boy, I listened and let him keep talking and had to sit there. But in the midst of people, in the midst of that day when there were people everywhere, for my father was the pastor of a large church and people were everywhere coming in and out of the house, there was a sense of utter isolation in the midst of loss. Some of you are in that place right now. I want you to hear this. It says that Jesus saw her. The Lord of the universe, surrounded by all kinds of other people with all kinds of demanding needs, coming and trying to get something from him, doing all that he was doing. It says that he looked and he saw her. Friends, I want you to hear this today. Jesus sees you. He sees you in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. It doesn't have to be some cataclysmic event within the world. It can be the simple feeling of an adolescent or a child feeling alone at school, of wrestling through something in their life. Jesus says he sees you. What comfort that brings. But that's not really that much comfort, actually. We can be seen in our pain, and Jesus could see, and he could observe. Yep, there's a grieving widow. She lost her son. What a shame. Having a bad day. Don't wish that on anybody. Glad that's not me. But Jesus goes further. It says that when the Lord saw her, verse 13, he had compassion on her. Some of us were away in Atlanta over the last few days for some workshops and training and discipleship, and I'd been preparing for this, and that word compassion was used within one of the passages that we were studying while we were there, and the word is actually this, if you read it in the Hebrew, Jesus saw her, and he had intestines on her. He had bowels on her. Okay. Seems rather disgusting. What it's describing is that Jesus' guts were turned inside out. He was so moved by her pain that it physically moved him. You ever had a pit in your stomach? That's the English vernacular for this. Have you ever had your skin kind of crawl? Have you ever felt like your arms maybe were, were weak or your knees were, were buckling when you saw and entered into the pain of somebody else? It says that Jesus saw her and he was physically moved by what he saw. He wasn't stoic and he wasn't out there somewhere. It says that he saw her pain he was moved by her pain, and he was drawn to her. The, the next verse is amazing. He spoke to her. Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, sees a grieving little widow in an un, just a tiny little town outside of another tiny little town in the midst of a tiny little country in the ancient Near East. And he not only saw her, was moved to compassion, but he was drawn to her to honor her by even speaking to her. Do you know how many people wanted Jesus to speak to them? 
I mean, dignitaries, leaders within the church, all kinds of folks. And Jesus speaks to this little woman. Maybe she was a big woman, I don't know. He speaks to this woman. And he says, do not weep. What an odd statement. What do you mean, don't weep? Don't you understand that my entire life and everything about me is now destroyed? I am going to become a beggar. I am going to depend upon the goodness of religious people who don't get it. I'm going to be the object of pity. What do you mean, don't cry? What do you mean, this is my son? I can't imagine the loss of a child that some of you have experienced. Many have said that it's unnatural for the parent to outlive the child. I don't know that I'd go so far as to say it's unnatural, but it's unbelievably painful. This woman was torn apart from the inside out. And it says that Jesus was torn apart from the inside out. And he comes near to her and he speaks to her. And then he does something absolutely amazing. He came up and he touched the funeral pyre. And he spoke again. And he spoke to the dead man. A couple of things there and we don't have time. Now Jesus could have just thought this, right? I mean, he's God. I'm thinking that he should rise from the dead. Boop! Rise from the dead. He's the God of the universe. He could have just said it from a distance. Hey, dead guy, get up. Get up. Time to live. He did that to Lazarus. But here, he makes a demonstrative effort to do something where he comes and he touches the funeral fire, which makes him, by the way, ceremonially unclean, he does something that was totally against uh, the religious uh, avant-garde of the day uh, to do. Because Jesus was saying, not only do I see your pain, but I will enter into your pain. I will become pain on your behalf. I will become unclean on your behalf. I will do something that is so unbelievably different. I will be hung on a cross outside of the city. I will be considered ceremonially unclean uh, so that you can then live. I will become unclean that you will become clean. I will enter into death, and I will blow death apart. I will, I will destroy the grave forever for everybody who has faith uh, in me because I'm the one who not only sees your pain, speaks to you, and is compassionate to you within the pain, but I have the power to overcome your pain and your loss. And he speaks to this woman, and he gives to her the thing that she needs most. And that, by the way, isn't for her son to live. What did she need more than anything else? She needed to see that Jesus was who he said that he was. She needed demonstrated to him. And he went and touched. And he spoke. He spoke into death. The man was dead. He wasn't, like, sleeping. He was dead. His soul was somewhere else. And Jesus could speak into that place of the dead and say, let's, let's call his name John. John, it's time for you to live again. Soul reuniting with body. Grayed face with the, if you've ever seen uh, the corpse of the veins breaking and the color leaving, the tongue darkening, the body crumbling. 
came back to life. And it says that he started to speak. Oh, don't you wish that it had been recorded what he said? I do. But it doesn't, so it must not be important. So don't listen to any pastor who tells you what he said. Because he didn't say uh, much there uh, other than this. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak. And Jesus said, come down. Most likely what he means by that is Jesus extended a hand to him and helped him come down from the funeral buyer. Again, Jesus touching, giving back. Friends, Jesus not only sees your pain and your loss, but he speaks into it. He's moved by it. And he has the power to do something in the midst of it. And here, what he gives is life. Because what we need more than anything else is life. We need to know that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, that we are utterly lost in those things. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He who raised Christ from the dead has raised us from the dead. He who has, Christ has ascended into the heavenly places above all rule authority. It says that now we who are with him above all rule and authority in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus says that's us. That one day we're going to be, we were relating, right now, we're relating to the woman. One day we're going to relate to the son. Because death so far, with the exception of Jesus, is 100%. Everybody dies. But one day we're going to hear the voice of a Savior that says, rise. In the new creation of the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be a statement, this same voice, we're going to recognize this same voice, and it'll call us back to life where we regain not a body where this young man died again one day, but we gain a body and a life that will never die. So the first thing I want you to see in the midst of these stories of these incredible women is this, Jesus sees you in the midst of your loss. I want you to know that today. Because some of you are coming here today in the midst of pain and loss, and you're wondering if Jesus sees you. I was talking to somebody not long ago, and I said, what's the barrier to your coming into a relationship with God? And he said, God killed my grandfather when I was young, and how can I love a God who would do something like that? In the midst of his pain, he didn't see Christ in the middle of his pain and loss. Some of you are in that place, and I'm inviting you today to see Jesus in the midst of that. So Jesus meets us in our pain. The next story of an incredible woman is this. Isn't it interesting that we talk about these incredible women, one a widow and one a woman who was known in the town as a sinner? Verses 36 to 50, and it's Christ meets us in the midst of our sin. One of the Pharisees, he's unnamed at this point. We know later that he's Simon. We don't know much about Simon other than he was one of the Pharisees, and he was probably a wealthy guy because he had a big house, and he had a place where he could have people come to dinner. And he invited Jesus to come eat with him. By the way, we don't know why he invited Jesus to come eat with him. Maybe it was to build up his um, resume. See the new hotshot uh, rabbi? doing all these things, he came to my house. It helps me. Hi, I'm Simon. I'm the guy who had Jesus at dinner the other night. Oh, wow, you're Simon. You're that guy. I don't know why, but he invited Jesus to dinner. And Jesus comes to dinner. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask uh, of ointment. It was interesting, we were talking this morning, even on staff, and someone was relating uh, about the woman. Here's what we, what we don't know about the woman. A lot. We don't know her name. Some would say it's Mary Magdalene. We're not sure if that's who it is. Some would say she was a servant of Simon and that she was there helping with the table. I doubt that very seriously because of her description, that I doubt that this righteous, self-righteous religious leader of the day was going to have that kind of woman uh, serving table for the distinguished guests of the day. So here's what we do know, that Simon was a leader of the religious group at the time, the Pharisees, the high uh, Pharisees, and he was wealthy and a prominent man. His house, like most of the houses of the day, would have been built around a courtyard, and there would have been a table where they would have reclined at table to eat. It would have been a low table. If you've come uh, to our Maundy Thursday service, we set up one of those tables up here. It's a low table, and the men would have been at the table reclining on their left elbow with their feet extending away from the table. Feet were disgusting and dirty. They still are and they uh, were not to be anywhere near the table because these men would have been wearing sandals and they would have been walking around in the ancient Near East in the heat of the day, and their feet would have been nasty by the end of the day, and they would have been there. And so uh, the people would have been there, and what was happening was many scholars believe that in those days, and they'd know it to be true by accounts, that when a prominent individual in the town was having a dinner party, the regular folks in the town came. There was no cinema for them. There was uh, no theater. Uh, They didn't get to go to Netflix. They didn't go to Redbox. They came, and they stood on the side, and they watched you eat your meal. How would that be? So all these strangers and townspeople were probably in the courtyard looking, and they were there And this woman knew that Jesus was going to be there. She heard that Jesus was going to be there. And she had a prior relationship with Jesus, meaning she had either heard him preach and heard what he had said, she'd met him, or at the very least, she had been told about him. And so in that, had a prior relationship. And so the guests were all around And the washing of feet of weary travelers and guests would have been the job delegated to a Gentile servant. It was even below a Jewish servant to touch the feet of a Jewish person. So it was below the below. It was a Gentile servant who would have done that. And the host of the meal would certainly never have done that. That's why when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples in the upper room on the night before he went to the cross, it's such an amazing event that takes place. So Simon, the host, interestingly enough, treated Jesus with a calculated, calloused contempt because none of this missed his eye. He was a Pharisee. He knew the rules. He knew how to have people come to the table. There was an intentionality to the fact that he didn't wash Jesus' feet. We don't know why, but maybe a motive was to say, I just want you to see where I hold you in contempt. That I don't think you even worthy of having your feet cleaned at my house. 
Jesus later says that you didn't greet me with a kiss. The normal practice of the day was when a guest came into the house that the host would have put his hand uh, onto the shoulder uh, of the guest and kissed him on the cheek. Simon would have said, hey, Jesus, if he acknowledged his presence at all, no kiss. Tradition would have been olive oil placed upon the head as an anointing, not in a ceremonial fashion, but just a greeting in that. And he didn't do that. Simon was showing his utter calloused contempt for Jesus and having him at the dinner table that night. It's an interesting and fascinating thing. And then this woman shows up. This woman who, uh, by the way, is described as a woman of the city who was a sinner. How would you like that to be your reputation? Maybe that is your reputation. Oh, there's Bob. He's a man of the world and quite a jerk. There's Sue. Oh, my goodness. You can go back to high school and the people with reputations or college and the people with reputations, we think, oh, that's juvenile. Friends, it's in the adult world, isn't it? We label and we tell and talk about different folks. This woman shows up, and there's a couple of quick nuances, and then we'll jump into the meat of it and, and keep going. What's the big deal with hair, by the way? This makes a lot to do about her hair. It says that she washed with her hair, and her hair, she wiped his feet, and some of you are going, well, it was probably just to show how disgusting it was. What a thing, or maybe just an act of service. No, here's the deal. And the Talmud, which was sort of the religious rule book of the day, it was the Robert's Rules with a whole bunch of other stuff thrown in of the day, it said this, that if a woman let her hair down in the presence of a man other than her husband, he had the right to divorce her. That a woman letting her hair down in the presence of men other than her husband was equivalent with her exposing herself to those men. And so it highlights here this woman who is coming and doing something that everybody must have been aghast to. Oh, my God. And the way that she's described. And then she brings, and I'll talk about her description in a second, then she brings perfume. And quickly, perfume in an alabaster jar was simply to show that it was an incredibly expensive gift. Maybe her most prized possession. Maybe something in the midst of her desolate life that she carried around in her satchel or if she even had a place to sleep that she could look and go, at least I have something of value. Maybe her mother left it to her. Maybe it was a family heirloom, but it was something of value. Maybe one of the men who had abused her had given it as payment for his abuse of her. But whatever it was, it was there. So what you see in this incredible juxtaposition of these people is that what you see are two kinds of lostness. I want you to see two kinds of lostness. Everybody says that this is a story about the woman. Oh, in so many ways, it's a story about Simon. Just like in Luke chapter 15, how do we know the story? We call it the story of the prodigal son. It's really the story of two lost sons, and the older son was much more lost than the younger son. Here you have a woman, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. The language used means that either she was a woman married to a sinful man, which probably isn't what they mean here, 
or that she was a prostitute. She was an adulterous woman who was now prostituting herself in order to make a living. And it says that this unnamed woman was a sinner and lost in her public sinfulness, which revealed her personal sinfulness. Her public sinfulness exposed what was really going on at the heart level. That she may have encountered Jesus at some point earlier. Again, we don't know. But whatever it was, now she heard that he was there. And in the midst of all of her brokenness, in the midst of all of her shame, in the midst of all of it, she was drawn to this one who she had heard words of life from. Words that could cover her shame. Words that would speak to her. Words of a man who would touch her non-sexually. Words of a man who could give her a virgin heart unblemished and undamaged by the effects of the fall. And she was drawn to this man, not in an inappropriate manner, which some of the movies of our day would try to show, but in the most beautiful, innocent way that a person whose public life fully expresses their inner life is drawn to Jesus, just like the younger brother in Luke 15. But then there's Simon the Pharisee. Now, he's named. Simon wondered, either in his mind or muttering to himself, if Jesus was really a prophet, would he know what kind of woman is touching him? I wonder if it was in his brain. He just thought it. You ever thought that about somebody else? What kind of person is that? Maybe you hear yourself utter it. Lisa kicks me all the time because I've, I've lost the shut-up button. It goes off in my head, and somehow I'm speaking, and she's like, Bill, people can hear you. Like, oh. Maybe that's what Simon said, because Jesus heard him, because Simon was asking, are you really a prophet? Because if you were a prophet, you'd be able to discern the type of people that you were with. And what he found out was Jesus was truly a prophet, because he had properly discerned the woman's condition, and he was properly discerning Simon's. Ah, it turned on him. You see, Simon was equally as lost as the woman, but his public righteousness concealed his private sinfulness. The woman's public sinfulness revealed her private sinfulness. His public righteousness concealed his private sinfulness. And to some degree, he was probably more lost than she was. But he was lost in the midst of his righteousness. He was lost in the middle of it. He considered the sinful woman and Jesus as very similar in his contempt for both of them. John Gerstner, who was a wonderful Presbyterian pastor from Pittsburgh, said many years ago that the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, the woman. The main thing between you and God is your damnable good works. Simon was putting all of his hope on his damnable good works and his busyness within the church, and his doing within the religious organization of the day, and he was lost. So there were two kinds of lostness, and in this room there are some of you who relate very much to the woman, and others of you who relate very much to Simon. But the problem is if you relate to Simon, you probably don't know that you relate to Simon. Because the sin of self-righteousness hides itself in religion. I attend church. I do these things. I'm a good person. 
And good people hate women like that. They condescend against them. They judge them. They do this. What kind of person would that woman be? Do you hear yourself in those words? Do you see yourself in Simon? And if you do, you should shudder. Because Jesus is saying it's incredibly difficult. Now he moves on, and unfortunately we don't have time to fully unpack it, but I'll say this as we begin to approach the table. We've been reading a book within our discipleship groups and ministry called The Answer. Randy Pope, the senior pastor at Perimeter Church, where he, former senior pastor there, wrote it. And he said there are two ways of understanding this parable that Jesus gives about one who's lost, has, owes a bunch of money, and one who owes a little bit of money. Both were lost. They couldn't pay it back. But the one who was forgiven much loved much more than the one who felt like they were forgiven little. He says this, there's two ways of understanding this, that we lost a lot, that Jesus did a lot, and that we got a lot, or the biblical understanding is that we've lost it all, that Jesus did it all, and that we get it all. Friends, as you approach this table today, what this table is is a reminder that Jesus did it all for people who have lost it all that he is drawn towards you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your lostness, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your self-righteous religious behavior. He's drawn to you. And the question is, the only people who will really be drawn to him are those who really see that they've lost it all. For Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven much will love much. The woman, she loved much, for she had been forgiven much. The widow, I imagine, loved much, for she had gained it all from him. The question for us today is, how will you approach this table? Or will you approach it at all? But friends, know this. We've lost it all. But Christ has done it all for us. And through the beauty of the gospel, we get it all in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of these stories for they are more than stories. They are true life of individuals who have encountered you. And I pray that we would relate with the widow and the woman and not with the religious church person. It's interesting how your upside-down kingdom honors these two women and diminishes the man. For you were saying it's never about outward appearances of gender, or of position, or of status. It is about the condition of the heart. And will our hearts be drawn to the one who says to us, get up, live, enjoy all that I've given to you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in shalom. So Father, let us come to this table of shalom today. Amen.